Thanks for tuning in. This edition of Outcasting will begin in a few moments. Outcasting is produced by Media for the Public Good, formerly WDFH Westchester Public Radio, non-commercial, non-profit, and volunteer-powered. One of the things that makes a show like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at mfpg.org and click on Support to make your tax-deductible contribution. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. And now, Outcasting. Asexuality has been under the radar. Probably a hundred years ago, a lot of people would probably not have understood homosexuality if they're part of the heterosexual majority. It's probably also the case that it's not something that people understand very well. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York and online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Andrew. On the previous edition of Outcasting, Outcaster Dante spoke of his experience growing up asexual. If you missed that program on the air, you can listen online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Dante speaks with Professor Anthony Bogart to get an expert view on asexuality. Professor Bogart teaches at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. He focuses on the study of human sexuality. What is your expertise in the study of human sexuality? Well, I was a traditional sexual orientation researcher, so I was interested in primarily looking at the origins of traditional sexual orientation, and I was looking at a secondary data set, which means that this was a, a sample that was available online that um, qualified researchers could analyze. And um, in the questions that they had asked participants, um, they actually asked them about their sexual orientation. And one of the questions actually was a little bit different than normal. It was a question that actually asked people about not just their attractions to men and women, but it gave them an option saying that actually I'm not really attracted to men or women at all and never have. And it occurred to me that these people were asexual people and really hadn't been studied before. And so that led to a kind of, I guess, insight that it's important to study that missing group within the context of sexual orientation, these asexual people. Define the term asexual for us. I define asexuality as a lack of sexual attraction, so no lustful lure for other people. Have you found any cause for asexuality or anything that correlates with it? We have found a number of correlates, uh, so things associated with asexuality. And those correlates may have some implications for the origins or the cause of asexuality. So, for example, um, some of our research has found certain biological markers that uh, are correlated with asexuality. Um, and others have also looked at biological markers and have found a relationship between those markers and asexuality. So there is some evidence that there's probably a biological predisposition to uh, someone becoming asexual, just like 
there's probably a biological predisposition for someone to become gay or straight. So um, consistent with research on traditional sexual orientation as well. Can you draw a distinction for us between asexuality and celibacy? Asexuality, um, the way I define it, is a lack of sexual attraction to others. And um, I think there's a pretty good theoretical argument that it is, in fact, a unique, separate sexual orientation. Um, celibacy is basically a choice, um, the choice to abstain from sex. Someone who is asexual um, may choose to abstain from sex and has a preference, probably, for not engaging in sex, particularly with other people. But asexuality at its core is more to do with a lack of sexual attraction, and it probably has less to do with a choice. I think most people agree at this point that homosexuality is an orientation and that it is inaccurate to refer to it as a choice or behavior. What is the difference between an orientation and a choice? An orientation probably has to do with um, an enduring disposition towards uh, other people or an enduring lack of orientation for other people. Celibacy is a choice. Um, whether or not one engages in a specific behavior with someone is something one can choose to do. And one's orientation probably has very little to do, for the most part, with people's choices. It more has to do with one's enduring predispositions towards others or a lacking uh, of a uh, disposition towards others. Is there a trend among mental health professionals to see asexuality as an orientation that exists within the range of normal human experience rather than a disorder that should be treated? Uh, yes, there is now more of a predisposition for uh, mental health people to actually see uh, asexual people as having uh, a unique orientation and less likely to see it as a, as a disorder or a mental health issue. When did professionals begin seeing it that way? In the last few years, there's been a change in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of uh, Mental Disorders, and that's partly uh, how people have started to change and view things differently. There's also been some research, including myself, prior to that, that have argued from a theoretical perspective that... Um, asexuality should not necessarily be construed as a disorder. It probably started about eight or nine years ago, I guess, um, in conjunction with uh, some of my research and also um, asexual activists started to become vocal in terms of their views and strongly suggesting that asexuality is not necessarily a disorder that needs to be fixed. And so... Uh, a number of psychologists, psychiatrists, um, and asexual activists have started to change the view on what is and what is not a disorder uh, related to asexuality. Some people may consider asexuality to be a result of childhood sexual abuse or a form of repressed homosexuality. Is there validity to these claims? Most likely, um, most asexual people have not had a history of abuse. Most of the current research suggests that there's probably a biological predisposition to uh, the origins of asexuality. In terms of a, a form of repressed homosexuality, some individuals who claim to be asexual 
maybe years later, may come out as gay. Although, again, there is some research that distinguishes the phenomenon of asexuality from homosexuality and heterosexuality. So I expect that most people who are asexual and, and self-identify as asexual will not necessarily come out as gay years later. In general, asexuality seems to be harder for people to understand than other sexual orientations. Why do you think this is? I think it's partly because asexuality has been under the radar. Probably a hundred years ago, a lot of people would probably not have understood homosexuality if they're part of the heterosexual majority. So, because asexuality has been under the radar, it's probably also the case that it's not something that people understand very well. Perhaps in 30 or 40 years, people have a better understanding of asexuality and they probably will have a sort of similar view of asexual people the way they have a similar view of, for example, other minorities. Do you believe there's a social stigma towards asexuality? Yes, I do. In fact, there's some interesting research that suggests that uh, asexual people are stigmatized and the sexual majority tends to have negative views towards asexual people. In fact, heterosexual people seem to stigmatize and have more negative views towards asexual people than they do towards other sexual minorities, including gay and lesbian people. What kind of incorrect assumptions do people make about asexuals? It's interesting from a discrimination standpoint. Um, some of the research suggests that the heterosexual majority sometimes actually sees asexual people as less than human. One of the incorrect assumptions, obviously, is that uh, they are not human. Of course, they are human. Um, another incorrect assumption is that asexual people don't necessarily have um, romantic inclinations towards others. And many asexual people still have, of course, romantic inclinations towards others. In our discussions on outcasting, we've talked about the difficulties in trying to categorize people in the traditional binary categories, male, female, gay, straight. We've learned that people are a lot more complicated than those categories suggest and are trying to shoehorn people into those categories can cause great stress because that category does not match who they are. There is a tendency, particularly among young people, to reject labels. At the time, we also learned that, for example, when trans people first discover other trans people, they have the first understanding that the category exists that they fit into, and that is often a greatly empowering discovery for them. Do you think that they might be rejecting only in attempts to fit into the binary categories? Yeah, I, I think that does make some sense. Um, I think people don't like labels to some degree, and they don't like to be pigeonholed into one category or another. So I think sometimes people avoid binary categories because um, it doesn't deal with the complexity of who they are as an individual. What do you think is the importance of labeling or classifying our sexuality and gender is to identifying as human? I think um, ultimately finding our place in the world, finding commonalities among other people, and also finding our uniqueness among other people is important to us. And so in some sense, having some level of labeling or some level of categorization without oversimplifying us is important for most human beings. And so um, having an identification process 
is an important part of the human experience. The Kinsey scale measures sexuality on a scale from zero to six, from heterosexual to homosexual. Where is asexuality relative to the scale? Is it on the scale at all, or are we talking about an entirely separate continuum? The Kinsey scale has been useful um, for categorizing um, sexual orientation, but it's not the most useful. Um, and the way I actually define it, and the way some others have defined it over the years, is actually using two continuum. And so with two continuum, a kind of cross where one is on the horizontal axis and the other is on the vertical axis, you can actually categorize people into four groups. So you can be high on attraction for the same sex, being gay. You can be low on attraction for the same sex, but high on attraction for the other sex and be heterosexual. You can be high on attraction for both sexes and be bisexual. Or, using both continuum, you can also be low on attraction for both sexes and therefore can be categorized as asexual. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported, independent producer based in New York and online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Outcaster Dante is speaking with Professor Anthony Bogart about asexuality. Professor Bogart teaches at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. He focuses on the study of human sexuality. Until the early 70s, homosexuality was classified as a mental disorder by mental health professionals in standard reference field, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, or DSM. What led to the removal of homosexuality from the DSM? Well, it was partly to do with the fact that um, gay communities and gay activists were influential. And it's partly also that many mental health people started to believe that uh, being gay in and of itself is not a mental disorder, and so that's what uh, started the ball rolling, so to speak. Was there a consensus among professionals at the time that this classification was a mistake? Uh, no, there wasn't a consensus, but certainly some mental health people, um, at least from my knowledge of the, the history of that time period, did in fact believe that the change was necessary, but there were certainly mental health people who felt that it was still a disorder and should maintain itself in the DSM as a disorder. Asexuality is listed under the current edition of the DSM. Do you think this is appropriate? Arguably, some forms of asexuality are still construed as a disorder in the DSM, and, and I would argue that that needs to be looked at and thought about more thoroughly, I guess. Right now, there is a provision where self-identified asexuals uh, would not be diagnosed. But if you're not self-identified, then you may still be diagnosed with having a disorder. And so that could still be problematic under certain circumstances. Uh, such as what circumstances? In this particular case, um, if someone, let's say, is um, not self-identified and and does not have attractions for others. They may still be diagnosed with, for example, a disorder called hypoactive sexual desire disorder. It may be the case that if one does not have attractions for others and also does not have any desire 
and, for example, feels distressed about it and hasn't come to the realization that they should be self-identifying as an asexual, um, they may still be diagnosed as having a disorder. But things, again, have changed, at least um, in the latest edition of the DSM, where at least there is a provision for self-identified asexuals not to be diagnosed. Are there any cases in which a lack or sudden loss of libido, possibly caused by a medical issue, may be mistakenly equated with an asexual orientation? There might be. Um, for most asexual people, they lack sexual attraction for others, but they may still have certain level of disconnected sexual desire, and they may still have a kind of non-specific or non-connected uh, sexual desire. So it may be the case that sometimes people may perceive themselves as having a lack of sexual attraction for others um, because of a temporary loss of desire, um, and therefore they may end up, for example, construing themselves as asexual. In those particular cases, I'd probably suggest that they're, they're not necessarily asexual in terms of having an enduring lack of sexual attraction for others, and it may be predominantly more of a desire issue that uh, may also be uh, fixed or, or, or helped, at least within the context of medical interventions. If a child approaches her parents and says that she may be asexual, how should her parents react? I guess my particular inclination would be that um, a parent should obviously be supportive, but also encourage the, the child to be open and to explore his or her feelings. And yes, even investigate from a medical standpoint whether this might be a kind of temporary phenomenon and examine, for example, any kind of medical issues that they may have. And I think that most young people will likely want to find out more about themselves, um, including perhaps any medical considerations. So there is still, I think, a reasonable outlet for people who are young to explore their lives, including the opportunity to see and examine themselves broadly particularly if they're so inclined. But I also expect that um, many asexual people probably know from an early age that they're different than others. And I expect that probably many different kinds of medical interventions may have very little impact on them in terms of changing their, their deep-seated inclinations, um, just like medical interventions probably have very little usefulness within the context of changing traditional sexual orientation. In our own research into asexuality, we found that an asexual orientation has nothing to do with the level of sex drive, but is about the range of people the person is attracted to. So straight people are attracted to the opposite sex, gay people are attracted to the same sex, and asexual people don't experience sexual attraction to others regardless of gender. But all this is unrelated to sex drive, which may be as high or low in asexual people as it is in sexual or allosexual people. Do you think that's a fair description of asexuality? I think it's a reasonably fair description of uh, asexuality. Um, I think there may be a fair number of asexual people that still have uh, sex drive. Again, that's not necessarily connected to other people. So I don't think it's necessarily 
sex drive per se that is the core defining feature of asexuality. But that having been said, I also think that um, probably on average, asexual people have lower sexual interest and lower sex drive than average allosexual or average sexual people. So I don't think it's completely independent of sex drive. But I do believe that the core feature is a lack of sexual attraction for others. As we understand more and more about the complexities of people, we discover that a binary way of thinking of people as gay or straight or male or female is an adequate way of describing different identities. We also come to understand that some sort of things that most people consider to be the same can actually be different. For example, most people equate physical sex and gender identity but we've learned about transgender people and come to understand that physical sex and gender identity diverge in some people. In the context of asexuality, a lot of people might similarly equate sexual romantic attraction and think that asexuals don't experience romantic attraction. So do we similarly have to develop a more nuanced understanding of it? For example, the fact that some asexual people can have a romantic attraction without any corresponding sexual attraction to a specific gender? Yeah, I I agree with that. I I do think that um, ultimately average sexual people need to have a more nuanced understanding of the complexity associated with asexuality and the fact that many asexual people still have romantic inclinations and also within a broader sort of understanding of the difference between sexuality and romance having some sort of distinction made between those two is important because there are oftentimes at least partially different phenomena. And so having a more nuanced understanding of sexuality and romantic inclinations is important. Similar to the term transgender, asexuality is a sort of umbrella term that encompasses a lot of variations and ideas about sexuality and romantic attraction. Can you describe some of the ways asexuals identify with respect to romantic attraction? In other words, just as the Kinsey scale describes a continuum of sexual orientation, we are now in an asexual context talking about a similar scale that describes a continuum of romantic orientation. Yeah, the way the way I describe it is, is that um, romantic inclinations need to be separated from, uh, at least partially, from sexual inclinations. And so you can have, in a similar way, two sort of two continua that are crossed for sexual inclinations. It can also apply for romantic inclinations. And therefore, you can have um, an asexual, aromantic person, so someone who has no sexual inclinations and also someone who has no romantic inclinations. And then... You can also have people who are romantically inclined towards the same sex, so homoromantic, but may also still be, for example, asexual in terms of having no sexual inclinations. Similarly, you could perhaps have someone who has heteroromantic inclinations and still be asexual, and so therefore may have a kind of romantic attraction an inclination towards the opposite sex or the other sex, but still have very little sexual attraction for the other sex. And so these kinds of subtleties, um, uh, I think, are interesting and important, at least to consider and think about within the context of 
sexuality, romantic inclinations, and also within the context of um, understanding asexual people more broadly. In a traditional relationship between two allosexual people, sex is often thought of as a big way for two people to become closer with each other. In what sorts of ways do asexual people bond physically and non-physically? Given that uh, asexual people are not necessarily aromantic or lacking in romantic inclinations, if someone is in fact a romantic individual and is bonding with another person, and let's say the person is also asexual, there are certain physical and non-physical ways that people can still bond and still form sort of strong relationships. Um, so there's ways of forming intimacy beyond, obviously, sexual intimacy. That includes certain kinds of non-genital touching, caressing and touching of one another that's not necessarily genital in nature. And then there's uh, certain kinds of intimacies just with communicating with one another, talking with one another, disclosing and, and being open in terms of one's conversations and sharing certain activities with one another that can um, bond one another. What can we learn about sexuality from the study of asexuality? Well, as I suggest in, in my book, there's lots of different ways that the study of asexuality helps us to inform sexuality. And in fact, for a human sexuality researcher like myself, one of the more interesting reasons to study asexual people, aside from understanding this minority group, is that it does in fact help us to know and have a deeper understanding of sex. And that includes um, some of the issues we've already talked about. For example, we understand better the, the nature of romantic inclinations and the nature of sexual inclinations and how, for example, they are sometimes different from one another. By studying asexual people, and the romantic inclinations, for example, we see how sexual and romantic inclinations can be decoupled or separated, and these kinds of separations can also occur even in sexual people. So we understand the nature of sex and romance better by studying asexual people. But there's other examples, too. There's um, things like better understanding gender differences or some of the similarities between men and women. And some of the work that we've done has shown that uh, some of the distinctions between men and women hold up, even in asexual men and asexual women. And so we understand the nature of gender a little better. I think we also understand better um, just the odd and strange ubiquity that uh, sex has within our society and just how prevalent it is, and just how powerful it is. And we also understand, um, to some degree, what is the nature of a disorder and what is the nature of a non-disorder um, by studying asexuality, particularly within the context of, obviously, sexuality. So there's lots of different things that we end up learning about sex, studying people who aren't sexual. Professor Anthony Bogart, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Anthony Bogart is a professor at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. He focuses on the study of human sexuality. On the previous edition of Outcasting, Outcaster Dante talked about his experience growing up as asexual. 
You can listen to the episode online at outcastingmedia.org. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This program was produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Dante, Michael, Joseph, Sydney, Jamie, and me, Andrew. Our executive producer is Mark Sofus. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported, independent producer based in New York. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project Hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat that you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Again, the number is 866-488-7386. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting LGBTQ Resources. I'm Andrew. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make a tax-deductible gift to Media for the Public Good. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit mfpg.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.